Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. We have made it to chapter 4 of Philippians, and we are making our way while you turn to Philippians chapter 4, uh, last week I issued a call that if you want to take discipleship seriously and you would like to be discipled by someone to take one of our uh, connection cards right on the back, disciple me, write your name on the front so we know who you are, but right on the back, disciple me. Or if you would like to disciple someone, write your name and right on the back, I can disciple someone. We're uh, For those of you who did fill it out, we're working on getting some curriculum together, so we're kind of all on the same page. So hopefully in the next few weeks to a month, we'll have everything organized and we'll, we'll link you up with someone. So uh, bear with us. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel message of the cross, which beckons us the place where we stand exposed for all the world to see that we're fallen, that we're sinful. And God, and yet it's such a place of freedom for us because now we are free to admit our failures and our sins and our shortcomings and we don't have to put up walls. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to get defensive. We can simply admit that we've sinned and that we let people down and that we say things that grieve your spirit. We do things that hurt people. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel and it's all because of your son Jesus Christ and what he has done for us through his perfect life, through his perfect obedience to your law, through his death and through his resurrection. And God, as we think about the gospel this morning, what it means for us to live together in community as gospel-centered disciples, would you begin to bring that freedom here so that people can freely admit that they've wronged people and that they've done wrong things, and yet would you bring freedom too for us to forgive people who have wronged us, And may your glory go on display and may the gospel go on display as you come and change us and transform us by your spirit. Would you do that this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. On May 1st, 1992, the third day of the L.A. riots, Rodney King appeared in public before television news cameras to appeal for peace, saying, People, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we get along? Can we stop making it, making it horrible for the older people and the kids? It's just not right. It's not right. It's not, it's not going to change anything. Please, we can all get along here. We all can get along. I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's try to work it out. Let's try to beat it. Let's try to beat it. Let's try to work it out. The answer to King's question is that we can all get along. Or at least Christians should be able to because of the power of the gospel. The real question underneath King's question is, why can't we all get along? And we know the answer to that. The answer is sin. Because we are sinners and we want our own way in every single situation and circumstance that we find ourselves. And if we don't get our way, we will fight until we get our way. 
But there's an even deeper question to ask that goes deeper than can we all get along and why can't we get along? The real question is why should we all get along? Why should Christians in a church body get along? What reason do we have? What's the underlying reason? That's what Paul will address today. We finally arrived at this portion of the letter of Philippians that many of you have said to me, I can't wait to hear how you preach that passage. It's the passage where Paul calls out two ladies who are disagreeing about something in the Philippian church, and he calls them out publicly through the letter. Paul will tell us, as he addresses these women, how and why Christians in a church body should get along with each other. The how is the gospel. The power to get along with people here in a church body, the power to get along with people in your home, your spouse and your children, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, is the power of the gospel. The why is because we will all stand before the Lord one day and give account. That's what we'll see today. How to get along. It's the power of the gospel. And the reason why is because we, should, we will all stand before the Lord and give an account one day. Okay, here's our big idea. Gospel-centered disciples strive to create a church culture where gospel forgiveness and reconciliation thrive. Gospel-centered disciples who are focusing on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his message of transformation to change us, those kind of people strive and they labor and they work hard to create this church culture where gospel forgiveness and reconciliation thrive, where it's happening daily and weekly, that we are working in such a way and reminding people about Jesus and about the gospel. We're creating this culture that when we wrong someone, there's this freedom, there's this culture in the church where you can freely admit that you've wronged someone and the person who has been wronged is free to say, I forgive you because you're a sinner. That's why Jesus came. I mean, it's really not that complicated, is it? Yet we get surprised. Can't believe this person did that to me. I can because Genesis 3 has affected them to the core of their being. We say, I can't believe why they won't forgive this person or that person. That I struggle with. We should be able to forgive people because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. So gospel-centered disciples, we work hard to create this kind of culture where we can come in and say, I've wronged you, will you forgive me? And we could, on the other end, we could say, I forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me of so much more. That's the kind of culture gospel-centered, try to create in a church. Now look at verse one. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice the word therefore. Paul's linking what he's about to say with what he just said. He's making this logical conclusion to what he just said in chapter three, which was all about you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. You can't do anything to keep favor with God through your obedience. It's all through Jesus' life. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's all about receiving his imputed righteousness, his perfection that comes to you through the gospel message. And it's all about uh, living in light of his return. It's all about pressing on passionately to know him. It's living in, in light of the fact that there are enemies of the cross that will distract us. All of those things that we've looked at over the last few weeks, Paul is saying, in light of all of this, stand firm in the Lord. He's calling them to stand firm in all of the gospel truths that he wrote about in chapter 3. He says, stand firm in what I just told you. You are made right with God, not because of your works, but because of Jesus' works. 
And you cannot maintain your favor with God just because you have a, a quiet time and read your Bible in the morning. You maintain favor with God. You have favor with God because of Jesus. So Paul says, stand firm in that. And then he piles up these affectionate terms to show how much he loves the Philippian church. He says, my brothers whom I love, I long for my joy, my crown, my beloved. Now, what's the connection here with, between living in light of the gospel, standing firm in the gospel, and all of these affectionate terms that Paul piles up here? I think they have to do with the return of Jesus, which Paul talked about in chapter 3. We saw it last week. Christ is going to return. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to make them like his glorious body. Paul uses these same terms in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 when he's discussing the Lord's return. This is what Paul says to the, the church in Thessalonica. For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory. Enjoy. He also told the Corinthian church that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So, what does Paul mean when he writes to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians and he says, You are my joy and you are my crown? He means this that their deep relationship that they have that has been born and come out and flows out of the fellowship of the gospel, he says, That deep relationship that we have is going to bring me joy on the day when all of us stand together before the Lord and give an account. That's the essence of pastoral ministry, is preparing people to meet their God and standing with them on that day. See, there is a gravity and a weight and a heaviness to what a pastor or a pastoral staff and the elders do with a church body, how we live together we will stand before the Lord one day, Grace, and give an account of, did we reflect God's glory as a church? Were we all about the gospel message? Or were we distracted and it was all about the gimmicks and, and you know, making light of the pulpit and doing whatever we can to draw people in and watering down the message? If we do that and stand before the Lord on that day, it won't be a day of joy and rejoicing because we'll say we blew it. We blew 40 or 50 or 100 years playing games. But if we take the gospel seriously and we reflect God's glory as a church, I think we'll be, like, be able to say with Paul that that day will be a day of joy. Now, if you want to know more about a pastor and his relationship with the church body, go back and, and listen to my installation sermon last fall on the church website. It's called Point the Finger at Grace, where I shared from one of my heroes, African-American Puritan pastor Lemuel Haynes, who said, you know, that a church body and its leaders are going to stand before the Lord and give an account. So if you want to know more about that relationship and the gravity and the weight that comes with it, then go online and you can check that out. The point is this, is that we will stand before the Lord and give an account. Will it be an occasion of joy? I think it can if we keep rehearsing the gospel and we keep reflecting God's glory. And I believe that it will be a day of rejoicing. As long as we don't get off track, it'll be a day of joy and celebration. See, Paul is a gospel-centered disciple. He knows that since the church is the main vehicle through which God displays his glory in the world, then the church must think about its future as it struggles in its present. 
Okay. We've got to think about the future as we have struggles here. What we do now and how we live with each other now has big-time implications for that final day. Not a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of rewards. It's a matter of standing before the Lord and giving an account of what we did with his resources, what we did with our time, did with our treasure, talents, those things. So it's a day of what kind of reward that we get from the Lord on that day. And I would argue it's a whole other sermon that the reward that we get is God himself. That's for another sermon, okay? Gospel-centered disciples strive to create a church culture where gospel forgiveness and reconciliation thrive. That's what Paul's doing here. He's striving to create this church culture in Philippi where the gospel can do its work of forgiveness and people can be reconciled one with another. And he is about to address two women in this letter who are fighting in the church. Look at verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The first thing that you'll notice here is that Paul meant to say, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to get new names. What strange names, aren't they? Chet even emailed me this week and said, odorous and stinky, which is really probably true because when you have people fighting in a church, it's odorous and stinky, right? Everyone knows it. But more strange than their names is the fact that Paul mentions them in this letter. Up to this point, anyone that he has mentioned, Timothy and Epaphroditus, have been gospel-centered disciples that Paul has kind of put on display for the church to model, to imitate, and to emulate. Now, here he comes, and he calls out these two women. I mean, you have to imagine sitting there. The church is gathered. They've received this letter from Paul. They love him. What does Paul say? They're reading uh, the letter out loud. All of these wonderful gospel truths. They come on the end of chapter 3, which is just all about the gospel and how we're united to Christ through his works and not ours, his imputed righteousness. He's going to transform our bodies. Paul loves them. They're his joy and his crown. And then he mentions the two women that are fighting in the church. Can you imagine what it was like? You'll probably hear a pin drop. Imagine sitting there and you're saying, amen. Oh, I love Paul. He's so great. Amen. And then he says your name. (laughs) We don't know what was happening here. We only know that two women were not united together for the gospel. Apparently, they were in disagreement over something. And we can't even speculate what it was. We don't know. What we can infer from this passage is that these women were not disagreeing over some major doctrine of any kind. If they were arguing over any core doctrine of the Christian faith, Paul certainly would have been more direct and would have corrected one or both of them. Paul simply tells them to agree in the Lord. It's very important to notice here. He does not tell them to agree with each other. He says, agree in the Lord. Paul uses the phrase in the Lord over and over again in the book of Philippians. If you want to do a study on that, do that. It's great. But notice here, this phrase, agree in the Lord, agree, is this word that Paul has used over 10 times in Philippians. We've seen it so far. It means to think a given way and then to act on it. We saw it in Philippians 1.7 where Paul said it was right for him to think and act this way towards the Philippian church. We saw it in chapter 2, it's mentioned three or four times, where Paul says, be of the same mind, have the same mind, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, think and act according to the gospel. In 3.15, 
of Philippians, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, you think otherwise. Last week, Philippians 3.19, they have their minds set on earthly things, the enemies of the cross. They think and act a certain way. So Paul is saying to these women, he's saying, think gospel-centered thoughts. Live in accordance with the gospel. Agree in the Lord. Think the same way and act in the Lord, meaning get your mind around the gospel and begin to think and act according to it. In fact, Paul is actually pleading with them. He's, he's begging them. He's, he's imploring them. That's the sense of the word entreat here. He's saying, oh, come on. Be gospel-centered, Euodia. Be gospel-centered, Syntyche. In fact, he, he entreats both of them. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. It's very personal for Paul. He cares about both of these. One commentator said that Paul is exhorting each woman separately, face to face. What we can infer here is that they each had their own opinion on a matter. It was not a core doctrine. In light of what has proceeded here, Paul wants to think the same way wants them to think the same way, to have gospel priorities. He's, he's wanting them to realize that, listen, life is about Jesus. It's about glorifying him. It's about delighting yourself in him and taking the gospel to the nations and living a gospel-centered life. See, gospel-centered disciples strive to create a church culture where gospel forgiveness and reconciliation thrive. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul will further illustrate this truth by appealing to another individual in the church body to intervene and to help these two women think gospel-centered thoughts. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Paul knows humans. He knows that people are going to fight and argue. They're going to differ on things. And he knows that sometimes heated arguments can get so bad that you need the intervention of a third party. And so he calls on this individual to do just that. There's debate in the commentaries over how to take this phrase, true companion. I like the translation, true yoke fellow or loyal yoke fellow. Maybe your translation has that. Uh, Is this person just a true yoke fellow or true companion? Or is this a person's name? I think it's... A person's name. The Greek is loyal Sisygus. I take it to be a person's name. I think Paul is peel- appealing to a man named Sisygus, who also needs to change his name, right? Whose name actually means yoke fellow. So I think Paul is resorting to a pun here. I think he's saying, Mr. Yoke fellow in name and true yoke fellow in action, as you are yoked together with me in the cause of the gospel, yoke these women up. That's what D.A. Carson says. So Paul is asking Sisygus, Mr. Yokefellow, to, to yoke these two women up in gospel priorities. He wants him to gather these two women together and help them agree in the Lord, to think and act according to the gospel, to get focused on the bigger picture of the gospel, to rehearse the gospel, to review the gospel, to remember all that God is for them in Jesus In fact, the word here for help that Paul uses is this Greek word which means to catch or to seize or to arrest. Paul wants Sisygus to get Euodia and Syntyche and capture their attention with the gospel message again, to get them united around the gospel. 
to gather these two women together for the gospel. I like what Martin Luther said. He said, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. I think that's what Paul's asking Sisygus to do here. Beat the gospel into their heads till they get the picture. They understand what being a disciple is all about. Paul is not saying that they drop all truth and disagree. Remember, if doctrine was at stake, Paul would have clarified it. He said, no, one of you is wrong, both of you are wrong, but this is, it's a non-essential, it's a gray area. There's no doctrinal issue at stake here. Are you, if you're familiar with Paul, you know he would have come unglued at this point, right? We would have another chapter of Philippians if there was a core doctrine at stake. It's not about a doctrinal issue. Our doctrinal statement on the end times says simply this at Grace Baptist. We believe in the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ before the promised millennial kingdom to execute his righteous rule over this earth. This means that you can hold to a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or a post-trib rapture and still fall in line there, okay? So you can hold any of those things. Maybe Paul is writing and addressing these women. Maybe one of the women is, hey, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Maybe one of them is saying, I believe in a post-tribulational rapture of the church. Who knows? Maybe he's writing about that. But, but here, you can hold any one of those positions. What we ask you to believe as a member is that Christ is coming back physically in a body just like ours, a glorified body, to execute and set up his rule upon the earth forever. That's what you believe. You can believe any, any opinion about when the rapture may occur. But what we ask you to believe is that Christ is coming back physically and that he's going to set up his kingdom upon the earth. So we can't even disagree. We can disagree over those things because that's not a core issue. If you came and said, I don't believe Jesus is going to come back in a real body, we'd say, we have issue with that. If we say, I don't believe Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on the earth ever. We have issue with that. We believe the Bible teaches those two things. So you can disagree over that. What are some of the things that we do fight over? Number one, and let's see if you can guess it. What's the number one thing churches fight over the most? Music, right? The style, the melodies, etc. are not what is important. When we think about the music, it's not the melodies. If you don't like the melody, if you don't like the style of music, those things don't matter. I heard the story where Chuck Colson was irritated at the contemporary worship songs that tended to repeat the choruses over and over. And in his words, he described the scenario. I mean, you know who Chuck Colson is, right? He said, when church music directors lead the congregation in singing some praise music, I often listen stoically with teeth clenched. But one Sunday morning, I cracked. We had been led through endless repetitions of a meaningless ditty called Draw Me Close to You. The song has zero theological content and could be sung in a nightclub for that matter. When I thought it was finally and mercifully over, the music leader beamed at us and said in a cheerful voice, Let's sing that again, shall we? (laughs) No! I shouted. Heads all around me spun while my wife cringed. Now, I would disagree with Colson. The song simply says that God is all we need, so draw me close to you. So I think it does have theological content, okay? But I might agree with Colson that sometimes repeated songs and refrains can get old, right? 
I knew a pastor who led worship in another church, and he, it was like these two lines that they repeated over like 12 times, and it was kind of like, you know, it was asking the Lord to come, and I was like, I think he's here. <laughs> I mean, he's already here, but I get asking for his presence, but man, we've asked 12 times. When do we cross over from faith to doubt? I, mean, I think he's here. We don't have to ask him to come anymore. He, he got the memo. So, so repeated songs and refrains can get old. I get that. But it's not a gospel issue. It's not a gospel issue. All that matters are the words that we sing. Are we singing what we believe? Are we singing our theology? Are we singing our doctrine? What we are singing, not how often, is the question, nor is the style or anything else. Secondly, we may fight over many other things, the color of the carpet, the dress and the style, which version of the Bible we use, but all of these are not gospel priorities. Listen, I don't care if you come in here wearing shorts and t-shirt and a flip-flop. I don't. Did you come in with a broken and contrite heart and you want to worship God and find your joy in him above everything? Then come on in. Okay, sure, we need to be modest and decent. I get that. But I don't care what you look like when you come in here. I care about your heart. Okay? I would rather have a guy come in in a tattered t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops who wants to find his joy in Jesus above everything in this world than have someone come in with a suit and tie who, look, who looks perfect on the outside, but their heart is hardened or they're harboring bitterness against someone. Listen, so it doesn't matter what our style of dress is, our style of music is, whatever. Those aren't gospel issues. It's about the heart. So what do we do when there are differences, though? Okay, here's where the rubber meets the road. James McDonald suggests three questions to ask during relational conflict over these types of things. And he says, after each question, he suggests that you add the the refrain, if not, let it go. Okay, if there's disagreement in a church body between people or sides in a church, this is what he says. First, Is this a matter of eternal importance? If not, let it go. For example, what if we came in here one day and said, hey, we want to serve Starbucks out here in the coffee area. And someone said, no, I don't want that. I like Folgers or whatever. Okay, It's not an eternal issue. Let it go. Secondly, is this a matter of biblical conviction? Could you turn to a specific scripture as the place of your stance? If not, let it go. One of the first times I, I was opened up to the politics that happened in a church, I grew up in a Methodist church, and I was standing outside uh, on the playground, and the pastor and another member in the church were putting in this slide on the playground equipment, and they got into this heated argument where one of them left angry about where the slide should go. And it's like my eyes opened up, and I was like, whoa, Genesis 3 is real. People are sinners. They fought over where the slide should go. And one man wanted his way so bad that he got mad and yelled at the pastor and stormed off. Could any of those Christians in that moment, the pastor of the same, could they point at a biblical passage and say, Scripture says that slides should be put on the playground and face this direction? They couldn't. So you know what? Let it go. Third, is this a matter about which Christians must agree? If not, let it go. What Bible version do you use? Okay, are you reading the Bible? Read the Bible. If it's King James, NIV, ESV, NET, whatever, NASB, it doesn't matter. Are you reading the Bible? 
What about baptisms? Do, do people have to get baptized in the baptistry or can't we baptize them in a pool? Christians do not have to agree where you get baptized at. So let it go. On the majors, conviction. On the minors, tolerance. And in all things, love. On the majors, conviction, core doctrine. We believe Jesus is coming back in a physical human body to set up his kingdom upon the earth. That is a major. There's conviction there. We will not move from that stance because we we believe scripture teaches that. On the minors, tolerance, dress, music, Bible versions, etc. Tolerance, it's okay. You like that style of music? Great. I don't, but you know what? That's okay. And in all things, love. So remember, if is this a matter of eternal importance? If not, let it go. Is this a matter of biblical conviction? Could you turn to a specific scripture as the place of your stance? If not, let it go. Is this a matter about which Christians must agree? If not, let it go. If there's disagreement in a church body, then and you hear about it, or you have an issue with someone, go to the person. Just go to them. This will cut off division and strife. I know it feels better to talk about someone to other people than to talk to them about them. Doesn't it feel so much better to go to someone and say, I can't believe he did. Doesn't it feel good? But it's wrong. Go to the person. Hey, brother, I love you, but you you offended me here. Or if there's disagreement, go to the person. Don't go to Facebook with it. Go to the person's face with this book. That wasn't even in the notes. That just came to me. (laughs) If you hear someone complaining about another person, then tell them to go to the person. If you hear someone say this, oh, is this the gossip train? I must have got on the wrong train. I need to get off at the next stop. I'm not interested in hearing what you say about that brother or sister. Go to them. That's what the Bible says. Don't feed what Satan wants. Gospel-centered disciples strive to create a church culture where gospel forgiveness and reconciliation thrive. Gospel-centered disciples want to encourage others to forgive people and to reconcile and come together and, and if necessary, be able to say, you know what, I'm going to let it go. We're just going to have to agree to disagree on this issue. That's what gospel-centered disciples do. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, He's labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. See, Paul is focusing on the here and now and the end. We are to be involved in gospel fellowship, working together for the gospel now because our names are written in the book of life. You see, he's come back to this whole theme of how we live in the presence how we're going to stand before the Lord. He's bringing eternity into the present. We need that perspective now. It will help us when we disagree. When we disagree with someone, we need to remember that we're on the same team. We both believe in the gospel. We want to live gospel-centered lives. We want the gospel to go to the nations, and our names are written in the book of life together. Think about that next time you have disagreement with someone. Who, is it going to be alphabetical? I don't know. Maybe your name is right next to the person that you're disagreeing with in the book of life. Your names are together there. And you're together here. And the gospel unites you. That that is gospel rehearsal. 
remembering all that Jesus has done for us and living in light of that now, living together with one another and realizing that one day we're going to live together with one another. So we clear up division and fighting and disagreements in a church body by either going to the person involved, seeking out a third party if necessary, Sisygus, Clement, others in gospel community, Paul's calling on the church to come together, loving all parties involved, getting over it, and rehearsing the gospel continually. But let me give you two more motivating reasons to not let division creep into this church fellowship. One, you might get weak, sick, or die. Pretty motivating reason, isn't it? Where do I get this? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 31. Addressing the Corinthian church who had a lot of issues. And he's talking about taking communion, the Lord's Supper. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. See, before we take the Lord's Supper communion, we are to examine ourselves to see how we're rightly related to one another. Can you imagine taking communion one day and then the person next to you just croaks and dies? Because they had so much bitterness and anger in their heart, they couldn't forgive their brother, but they're saying, I'm willing to accept forgiveness from you, God, but I will not extend it. That would change a church culture, wouldn't it? People just started dying. So there's a motivating reason to not let division and disagreements creep into a church body. Paul would say, how can we have, say we have peace with God when we don't have peace with one another? John said, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen and not love your brother whom you have seen? See, it will bring the Lord's loving discipline if we neglect to forgive one another and rehearse the gospel and then we come to communion and partake of it, and we just say, I don't care about the gospel. I just want these elements which represent the gospel, but I don't want this to get into my heart so that I forgive others. Second, even more important than our own sickness or our own death, is that the Lord's glory is at stake when we fight and have division. Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, it's through the church that God displays his wisdom to the heavenly realms. This is coming on the heels of him saying that Jew and Gentile who had major differences with one another would come together in one body. And when that happened, Paul said that God's glory gets displayed through the church to the heavenly realms. So what we do here is sending a signal to the spiritual realm. Are we displaying God's glory? Are we saying the gospel is the greatest thing in the world, the most powerful thing in the world, that it can take people who disagree over all kinds of things, but we can come together and be united in the gospel and love one another. When we do that, God's glory goes on display big time. That's what we're to be about as a church, to reflect God's glory. And when we fight and there's bickering and disagreements, We don't display his glory. His glory is at stake. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, let's examine ourselves. Let's review the gospel right now because that's what these elements represent. The bread, the 
the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cup, his, his blood that was shed for, for us. Let's review the gospel right now. If you need to say, God, search my heart, forgive me. I've withheld forgiveness. Do that now. But understand, Christian, right now you're blameless in God's eyes. That's what these elements represent. But if you're harboring bitterness to your spouse, your children, a coworker, a neighbor, do business with God now and say, God, forgive me. I'm going to go to that person. Or I'm just going to mentally say, I'm going to forgive them right now. That's what these elements represent. Peace with God. And because we have peace with God, then we can have peace with one another. Let's take a moment, ask God to search our hearts. None of us want to take this, this moment lightly and incur the Lord's discipline. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how merciful and how gracious you are to us. We admit that we are sinners. We stand exposed at the cross and nothing we even say about ourselves can be any more clear than what you said about us at the cross when you sent your son Jesus. And nothing that anyone else says about us, God, can disarm us any more than what you said about us at the cross with your son's death. We stand exposed as sinners. Father, we we admit that at this moment. We all desperately need you. We have sinned in, in thought, in word, in deed, and motive. We've grieved your spirit with our words. But we thank you for Jesus. Forgive us, Father, for the times when as a church body we have we get off mission. We forget it's about your glory. We forget it's about the gospel. Forgive us for those times when we take gray areas and we elevate them over the importance of the gospel. Would you forgive us, God? Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for what these elements represent, that you sent your son to redeem us and to save us and to forgive us and to transform us. And God, so as we ask your forgiveness this morning, God, We now move to a time of just celebration, thanking you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that he never, ever sinned once. That he fully obeyed your law. And all of that wonderful obedience of his, his active and passive obedience gets credited to us, God. It's astounding. It is good news to sinners. Thank you, Father, for your son. This is all about him. Would you help us to celebrate the peace that we have with you now and be able to sing and rejoice that we have right standing with you because of Jesus and what he has done and not what we have or haven't done. Thank you that you're so merciful, God, and so patient. Cleanse us, wash us, make us a church body that says we can disagree over all the gray matters, all the gray areas, the things that don't matter. God, would you make us a church that says... that doesn't matter what the music is. doesn't matter about how people look, God. What matters is the gospel. Would you make us a church that reflects your glory in that way? In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.